Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening, where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation, our fourth installment of reflections into the book of Revelation, a study that will have us going through the book, really verse by verse. So we will be in this for, again, what I project to be three to four months. But before we get into our study for this evening, I just wanted to extend a warm thank you to all of you who are tuning in by way of podcast all across the world. I know there's some faithful listeners in Brazil, France, Italy, Spain, Portugal, South Africa, Canada, Mexico, uh, more collectively, Central America, and again, I just want to say thank you. It really does mean a lot to me and to all those local uh, faithful listeners as well. I continue to appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to spend time with me, reflecting upon uh, just not only the teachings of the Catholic Church, but how we are to take sacred Scripture and the teachings of the saints and apply them to our own lives. Uh, Certainly, this study on the book of Revelation has a lot to do with just not understanding the book of Revelation in some external sense, but really taking that understanding and asking the question, what does this have to do with me in my journey of faith? So as we go through some of these theological reflections uh, from the book of Revelation, and some are very rich, and my hope throughout these upcoming weeks and months is to just kind of decrypt some of this language, we do that so that you can begin to apply the lessons to your everyday life. Okay, with that, the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, is altogether unique, is it not? I mean, the Gospels tell the story of the life and teaching of Jesus in the third person. The epistles communicate teaching and and exhortation about following Christ from the apostles and other teachers of the first Christian generation. But the book of Revelation presents its readers with a vision of the risen Lord himself, who entrusts his servant John with an urgent word of prophecy for the seven churches of Asia and through them to the whole church in all times and places. So thus, while the whole New Testament addresses us as our Lord's disciples in the book of Revelation, Jesus addresses us in a specially direct way. And as I have already set up, a way that has a very rich liturgical context, a context that we will continue to engage this evening. So, with that, if you have your Bibles out, we will begin to go through these verses, verse by verse. And so we start with the prologue, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must happen soon. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who gives witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ by reporting what he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud, and blessed are those who listen to this prophetic message and heed what is written in it, for the appointed time 
is near. Okay, although we are used to calling this book the book of Revelation or the Apocalypse, we must remember that the full title of the book is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. The Greek word translated revelation is apocalypsis. Huh? It literally means unveiling. And beside this single occurrence in Revelation, which is very important, that I'll get to here in a minute, the word appears 17 times in the New Testament in reference to Christian prophecy, what you see in Paul's letter to the Church of Corinth, the disclosure of God's previously hidden plan, if you were to go to Luke 2, verse 32, and Romans 16, verse 25, or the manifestation of a new order at the second coming, Romans 2, 5, chapter 8, verse 19, and 1 Corinthians 1, 7. When Revelation was written, my friends, apocalypsis had not yet come to connote what people today commonly mean by apocalypse. In point of fact, if you were to go into the first century and get into the mind of the audience, there was a predominance in how this word was understood. And what was that meaning? Well, apocalypsis, defined as unveiling, was understood as an event. Now, pay close attention because this is so important. It was a seven-day event, and note the importance of seven here, a seven-day event where the groom would get to know the bride's family and the bride would get to know the groom's family. And after this seven day of interpersonal communion, two families coming together to get to know one another, on the seventh day, the groom would lift up his bride in a canopy and take her into a tent. That is when the groom would lift the bride's veil, hence unveiling, and their marriage would be consummated. Now, I want to pose to you a reflection. Think about this. On the seventh day, the groom took the bride, lifted the veil, and as you can well imagine, lifted off much more, and the marriage was consummated. Essentially, on the seventh day, two became one. Does that sound familiar, my Christian and Catholic friends? When we read of the revelation of Jesus Christ, we are reading of the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. We are reading about the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which, if you were reading this in the first century, was caught up in this bridal imagery. Why? Well, we have been making the case that the book of Revelation is about the Eucharist, is about the liturgy, and what happens during the liturgy? What happens when we receive the Eucharist? Our Lord present is now streaming in our veins, and God enters into this bridal union with our souls. I know that is very rich, but what we are about here on Seeds of Truth is unveiling some of these verses, so to speak, that we might appreciate what John is after and ultimately how this was being understood in the first century. So I do ask that you kind of take this to contemplation and be mindful that, once again, this is a book that is rich with liturgical imagery, okay? Very rich with liturgical imagery. So already, by the word revelation, we are made to reflect on the importance of the Eucharist, a theme that will act as a kind of overture to our whole study. Now, what else? 
Well, as we have seen, the book of Revelation was written during a time of persecution, during a time of suffering. And because of this, John sets out from the very beginning to explain suffering. Thus, in the first verse, he speaks of himself as a what? Servant. Now, the word servant evokes the image of what? The suffering servant in Isaiah 53. I know during Lent and and Good Friday, we are really made to reflect upon the passage of Isaiah 53. Well, this is what John wants us reflecting upon, huh? The suffering servant. From the earliest times, this passage was understood, that is Isaiah 53, as a prophecy about Jesus, the true suffering servant, who, as Isaiah 53 verse 10 reminds us, makes himself an offering for sin. It speaks of our Savior, who was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that made us whole, and with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5. And what's important for you and I, my friends, is that if we call ourselves Christians, we are also called to be suffering servants, since we are called to share in the work of Christ. I've talked about it before. Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. You see, Paul first began to understand this relationship between the suffering of the church and the suffering of Christ when he himself encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. What did Jesus say? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Well, who was he persecuting? He was persecuting the church. And yet Jesus says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Christians share in the work of Christ, the suffering servant, when they join their own afflictions to his. Brothers and sisters, whether I stub my toe, whether I prick my finger, whether I break an arm, whether I lose a loved one, whatever gives impetus to the cry, if it is given to God, there is redemptive value in that. I know yesterday in our opening reflection, I I was sharing with you about my nephew Joseph that I know many of you out there know. Many of us have lost loved ones. And the kind of cry that comes from the deepest place of the being When it is given to God, there is great redemptive power. Think about Jesus on the cross. Think about Jesus on the cross. Think about his cry. Unite your cry with our Lord's cry, and what you have is profound fruit. I know it is excruciating. We could hardly bear it, right? But in saying excruciating, we are to be mindful that the very word excruciating comes from the Latin excruces, which means from the cross, from the cross. It was never enough that Paul preached Jesus Christ. No, he preached Jesus Christ crucified, crucified, you see. Because the moment we take Christ down from the cross and all we have is just the cross, We are not made to reflect upon Jesus on the cross. And so Paul wants us to reflect upon Jesus on the cross. That in doing so, we might be mindful of his own words 
Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Brothers and sisters, unite your cry to Christ. I know it is so difficult. It is so difficult. God entered into human history, and he weeped with man. He knows what it means to weep. Weep with him. Now what about John? John is Christ's servant. And he knows what suffering's about. He was exiled on account of his testimony to him, right? So the book of Revelation is written to those being persecuted for the Lord, John's fellow servants. And anyone who is persecuted with the Lord is a fellow of John. Now, in relationship to these initial verses, it is also important to note that the revelation from Jesus comes through what? His angel. Now, it might seem odd that Jesus doesn't simply give his message straight to John. Odd, that is, until you read the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God frequently deals with Israel through who? The angel of the Lord. And this angel acts and speaks on whose behalf? Yahweh's behalf. He's God's special messenger and is closely associated with God himself. We see this, for example, in the story of the burning bush. Exodus 3.2 explains that what? The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. Yet the author of Exodus also tells us that it was God who spoke through the bush. Right? What does Exodus 3.6 say? And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. We see then that the Lord himself is truly present through the workings of his angel. And in Revelation itself, John frequently applies things traditionally associated with Yahweh to Jesus. And in this, John shows that Jesus is truly God. Jesus acts as Yahweh by communicating in a similar way as God did in the Old Testament, through an angel, right? At the end of the book, we read from Revelation 22.9 that the angel identifies himself to John as a fellow servant. Here, John learns a profound truth. Christ is now present and working through humans in the same mysterious way. He once worked only through angels. Just as God now raises humans to share in the heavenly liturgy, he also now works in and through them as once he did only through the angels. And I also think that's a very important reflection in relationship to the saints, right, and their mediation. Now this passage from chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written therein, for the time is near. It is important to note that the blessings on those who read and those who hear imply a liturgical setting, right? In the first century, people didn't go out, buy their own copies of the book of Revelation from a local bookstore, go home and read it. No, copies of books were expensive, and we're not usually kept for personal use. I, I think we might be detached from this reality 2,000 years later. The proper place this book was read was in the church's Eucharistic liturgy. This is why there is blessing for the reader, or as we commonly know in Catholic language, the lector, and a blessing for the assembled congregation. Therefore, from the very outset, my friends, the book of Revelation must be understood not only in its original historical setting, but also in the context of the liturgy. 
The apocalypse can never be explained properly apart from Christ coming to the church in the Eucharistic celebration. And this just isn't Dr. Holcraft carrying on or some of these authors that we're drawing from, Peter Williamson, Dr. Scott Hahn, Dr. Michael Barber. This comes from the Catechism, right? Go to Catechism, paragraph 1137. There it speaks to the importance of the relationship between the Apocalypse and the Eucharistic celebration. So, it is there, in this liturgical setting, that the Church unites her suffering with Christ and truly experiences Him coming to her, and her I mean Church. I spoke to this the other day. We are the second coming of Christ when we receive the Eucharist and we go out to share the gospel of the Eucharist, the gospel of thanksgiving, the gospel of joy. So very important. All of these things contained within those first few verses. You know, when God tells us that our salvation will be soon or in a very little while, it is God's way of bridging the gap between the divine and the human points of view. Like a parent, maybe, who, who truthfully assuring an impatient child that Christmas really is not far off, God speaks to human beings from his superior perspective on time itself, encouraging us to persevere in hope and warning us to be vigilant, right? When we ourselves pass from from time to eternity, we will see with perfect clarity how soon, how immediate was his love and response to our prayers and the fulfillment of all his promises. We will see all that we need to see. It will be 2020 like we've never known 2020. The time, my friends, when each of us will be summoned to render an account of our life before the judgment seat of Christ, oh, be assured, this will arrive sooner than we think, perhaps unexpectedly at the hour of our death or when the Lord returns. Consequently, the repeated warning of Revelation and the rest of the Bible that the end is near is salutary if we listen and heed. Okay? If we listen and heed. Oh, but this life is the blink of an eye, and we need to sharpen our focus on what really matters. Is that not what the book of Revelation is all about, especially when we start talking about the Eucharist? Okay, let us turn to verses 4 to 6. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Many times people become so caught up in trying to explain how Revelation describes events in our present day that they overlook the fact that John writes to seven very specific historical churches, <laughs> right? Those churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, and etc. were real Christian communities with their own particular needs. To understand John's message then, we have to try to understand the historical situation. At the same time, the book's teaching is for the whole church, 
represented by those seven communities. The church fathers rightly pointed out that the seven is the number of what? Wholeness, perfection. It was the number of the covenant. Therefore, by writing to seven churches, John writes to the whole church. This theme certainly will be explored in later verses. So who are these seven spirits anyways? Grace and peace come not only from God the Father and Jesus, but also from the seven spirits. Since grace is given not by angels, but by God himself, the phrase seven spirits appears to be a reference to the Holy Spirit, right? And to use the word seven in conjunction with Holy Spirit, we are then made to think of what? The seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. Seven, which is a number of wholeness, and holiness is here used to designate the very gift that comes from the inner life of God in the Trinity, the most perfect spirit of all. In verses 5 to 6, John employs several different yet important terms to describe Jesus as priest-king. First, he is the faithful witness. The word for witness in Greek is martyr or martyria. In the tradition of the Catholic Church, we have some saints who are martyrs, Christians who gave a profound witness in their faith even unto death. That is a martyr. We are certainly seeing many martyrs today. Christ is also the firstborn of the dead. Firstborn has priestly implications, as many of us know. Before the sin of the golden calf, the firstborn sons were the priests in Israel. Jesus is priest and victim, firstborn and martyr. Finally, he is the ruler of kings on the earth, the king of the world. And these concepts, martyr, firstborn, priest, and king, all fit together to form a vitally important theme in the book of Revelation. In this, we will come to learn as we study this book how Christ fulfills in himself and in his church the original calling of the first man, Adam. Now, let's look at this more closely. Adam was created with the life of grace in his soul and made to be a child of God. Luke, in fact, calls him the Son of God in Luke chapter 3, verse 38. However, Adam had to undergo a test. So God put him in a garden, which he was directed to guard. Unfortunately for all of us, Adam failed. The serpent got in. But how? Well, the serpent of Genesis 3 is not your typical kind of snake, if you will. The word for serpent in Hebrew is nahash. It is used elsewhere to describe the dragon known as the Leviathan in Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1. Revelation chapter 12 tells us this is exactly what this ancient serpent was. We read in Revelation 12, 3, And another portent appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. So Adam was to guard the garden, but failed because of his fear. The devil presented a life or death threat to Adam. He could either confront the devil and engage him in combat to defend his bride and the garden, a battle he could never have won on his own, given the immense power of of this fallen angel. Or, my friends, he could go along with the devil's suggestion and eat the fruit. What did the devil promise? If you eat the fruit, you won't die. Well, Adam didn't want to die, 
So he ate the fruit, right? Adam fell because he loved his earthly life more than his supernatural life. He refused to be a martyr. He refused to give God his own life and love. Adam had a choice. He could have life in heaven or natural life on earth. And as Scott Hahn once put it, in relationship to Adam and Eve, they had to choose between two kinds of life, natural and supernatural, physical and spiritual. Out of fear of suffering, Adam chose the latter. But why was the price so high to get to heaven? Why death? Couldn't it have been simple? I mean, couldn't it have been, as Michael Barber says, a simple taste test? Not if you know what heaven is. Heaven is not a place where little naked baby angels fly around all day. It is not a place with golden highways, nor is an endless strip of harp dealerships. Heaven is entering into the very life of God. If heaven is sharing in the life of the Trinity, it is fair to ask, what does the Trinity do? Well, we know the answer to that, my friends. The answer is love. The life of the Trinity is eternal life-giving love, where the Father, out of love, pours his life out into the Son. The Son, the image of the Father, gives himself back to the Father in life-giving love. And the love that the Father and the Son share is what? The Holy Spirit. This is why 1 John 4, 7 says, God is love. The Trinity is love given, love received, and love shared. It teaches us that love is holding nothing back. Heaven is entering into the life of perfect love. There we will experience and share in this perfect love, this true love, this love which fulfills our deepest ache, our deepest longing. It is, my friends, a love that satisfies. Rest assured, this is what's waiting for us in heaven. This is why Adam had to die, because that is what total life-giving love looks like when it is offered by a human being, right? This is why Jesus had to die. It is not because God likes to see blood and suffering. Of course not. Rather, Jesus simply did in his human nature what he does from all eternity as the Son. He pours himself out in love. Adam had to learn to embrace life-giving love because that was what he was called to embrace in heaven. So the test of the garden was meant to teach man the one lesson he needed to learn to enter into heaven, self-giving love. Okay, we will pick up here in our time together tomorrow where we will continue our reflections into what was going on in the garden so as to better appreciate what verses 5 and 6 are all about. Amen? Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.